Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hi, I'm Tracy Carr with the Mississippi Library Commission and the Mississippi Center for the Book. And thank you for joining us for Windows to the Past, the historical fiction panel at the Mississippi Book Festival, the virtual version. Historical fiction can um, be a lot of things. It can be a novel set in another time. It can be something based on a true story. It can be based on real people. Um, and these three authors we have with us today have, have a, a combination of those things. So our parameters are pretty wide open here, and I hope you'll enjoy all our conversation. So I'm joined today by three amazing authors, and I can't wait to get started. Uh, we have Maricel Vera, author of The Taste of Sugar. Hi, Maricel. Hi. Uh, Ariel Lahan, author of Codename Helene, and Kristen Harmel, author of The Forest of Vanishing Stars. Thank you so much for being here with us. Virtual is, is maybe not quite as good, but it's still pretty good. Yes. Well, thank you for having us. This is second best possibility. Yes. So. Exactly. I know I wish we could have been there in person, but I'm glad we're at least getting to connect this way. Yes. Yes. Me too. The, for, I just want to get started with y'all. If you can each tell, tell the audience about your books, about the, 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 the featured books. So I know you, all, all of you have multiple books, but the, the ones that we're talking about today, uh, just tell give us a little background about um, what your books are about. And let's, Ariel, you're already on the screen. So we'll start with you. Um, my novel, the newest one is called Codename Helene. It is the fictionalized account of a true story. The woman, a woman named Nancy Wake. She was a young Australian expat living in Paris right before the outbreak of World War II. She had just bluffed her way into a reporting job for Hearst newspapers, and she had just fallen in love <clears throat> when the Nazis invaded France. And like so many <clears throat> people at that time, she had to decide rather quickly, will I stand by and do nothing? Or will I do something to help stop this atrocity? And Nancy Wake was not the sort of woman to stand by and do nothing. So she began smuggling first documents <clears throat> to help Jewish refugees get out of France and into Spain. And then she began smuggling down airmen and Jewish refugees in person from one side of France to the other. And she became so good at this work that she became the Nazis' most wanted person throughout the war in any theater and ended up with a 5 million franc bounty on her head and was faced with this decision do I escape myself or do I stay and die? She chose to escape. Her husband stayed behind. She went directly to England, joined the SOE, became a spy for the British, and was eventually flown back in behind enemy lines to lead 7,000 French resistance soldiers. It sounds insane, <laughs> but every bit of it really happened. And none of that is a spoiler, I promise you. That's basically back cover copy. It's amazing. What a story. It's it's amazing that it's a true story. That's that's the uh, really amazing thing. Um, and I look forward to asking you all kinds of questions about it. Uh, Kristen, let's hear from you. 
Sure. Um, so my book is also about World War II, The Forest of Vanishing Stars. Um, and actually, I'm thinking my previous book, The Book of Lost Names, would have been a much better companion to Ariel's book because it also takes place in World War II France. This one is World War II Poland. Um, but I think it has a similar heart in some ways because it's about a woman who is faced with the decision um, of whether she does nothing or whether she stands up to help. So the story is basically about um, a young woman who was kidnapped from her German parents when she was just a baby, when she was two years old, and raised deep in the wilderness of Eastern Europe by a woman who basically teaches her all the skills uh-huh. she'll need to survive, but gives her virtually no human contact. Um, so when the woman dies in 1942, she's wandering the forest alone, when one day her life intersects with that of a family of fleeing Jewish refugees. And she learns for the first time what's really happening outside the safety of her woods. Um, so she knew they were at war. You know, she um, they'd seen soldiers, they'd heard bombs dropping, things like that. Um, but she didn't really know what was happening to the Jewish um, citizens around the forest. And of course, what we know was happening was they were being rounded up and put into ghettos. Many of them were being executed. Many of them were being deported to concentration camps. So now she's faced with this decision of, uh, you know, whether, as Ariel said about Nancy Wake, whether to do something or um, whether to kind of retreat back to her life of safety and save herself. So obviously, obviously she chooses to do something or um, we would probably not be here today talking about this book because it would be like 12 pages long. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but in, in doing so, it kind of opens this whole new world for her. Um, she uh, she for the first time is really learning what it's like to be around other people and function in a society. And she's also faced with all these questions about identity because she was born to these German parents, one of whom we know from the very beginning um, is, is an enthusiastic follower of Hitler. Um, and so she's faced with a lot of guilt. Is she, does she bear some responsibility because of who she was born to be? Or is she who she was raised to be or who she's chosen to make herself? So there are a lot of questions about identity, but the, the, um, the story about the woman is fiction. Um, she is a fictional character, but the uh, story of the refugees surviving in Eastern Europe is very heavily based on real life stories of refugee groups who fled into the forests and actually lived through the war that way. Um, so um, that was a really fascinating, eye-opening, inspiring research to do. And we're going to uh, get back to research in a moment, but Maricel, tell us about uh, The Taste of Sugar. Well, this novel, The Taste of Sugar, um, takes place uh, in a completely different part of the world during a completely different time than your two books, uh, ladies, about World War II. Um, when I was working on my first novel, If I Bring You Roses, I, came, I was doing a lot of research and I learned that 5,000 Puerto Ricans left Puerto Rico in 1900 to 1903 to work in the Hawaiian sugar plantations. And so that fact just, I, I couldn't believe that 5,000 people left to go to Hawaii during that period. And I was wondering what was happening in Puerto Rico during that time that they would leave. So that just led me to fantastic research. Um, and this story is set during that time. And it's about um, a young coffee farming couple who live in Puerto Rico. Uh, and uh, they're very young. Um, they don't know what's going on in the rest of the world, that the United States is planning to launch um, the Spanish-American War that will drastically change their lives because the United States goes to Puerto Rico and they invade it in 1898. And they changed 
Puerto Rico. They devalue the money. Uh, they uh, impose taxes on um, the farmers. So now they have this tax burden that they didn't have before when they were a colony of Spain. And less than a year after the Americans invaded Puerto Rico and um, began a military government, there's this huge hurricane, San Siriaco, that's similar to Hurricane Maria. And it devastates the island, just like Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico in 2017. Uh, even the same areas of Puerto Rico where the coffee land is. And um, so then my couple loses their farm and uh, there is no work in Puerto Rico. So they are among the people who decide to go to Hawaii and work in a sugar plantation. Well, the way I work is that because I have to do so many years of research, um, I try to place my people in places where my ancestors lived. So um, there were five voyages, four or five voyages that went to Hawaii. And so I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, wow, I hope I can find one voyage where the people came from Utuado, the, where my family's from. Uh, and I did. So that was great. I could place my farmers there. And uh, it helps me to um, because it takes so long. And it's like a little gift that I give to myself if I can place my characters where my ancestors came from because then I can imagine them. So, so this, um, the taste of sugar is also, it was very fascinating for me to work on it because in the beginning I thought it was just going to be about 5,000 Puerto Ricans who went to Hawaii to work the sugar plantations and this one particular couple. But as I was working on it, I realized that it was really about how Puerto Rico became a colony of the United States. Yeah. So that's what the taste of sugar is about. Well, you um, you opened the door to the research uh, question there with, um, you know, following your ancestors and making sure that you're uh, you, you can do that, place your people where your where your people were. Um, so when all of you are uh, embarking on a new um, novel idea, what is the research process like and where do you start and while you're writing, do you fill in something and then go back and fill it in? Or do you stop at that moment to go look it up to be accurate? Like, what is, what is that process like? Uh, well, it, when I first started working on this novel, a lot of things were not available on the Internet. I wrote this librarian at the University of Hawaii because I couldn't go. I, my children were small and I couldn't go to uh, the plantation archives. You need, like, special permission anyway. And she was wonderful. And she Xeroxed every um, article in the Hawaiian newspapers from 1900 to 1904 that had Puerto Rico or Puerto Rican in it. So I learned so much about like the prejudice that, that people felt about the Puerto Ricans. And I also learned how people lived in Hawaii at the time. Uh, another thing, I, um, I wrote the scenes, uh, the chapters about the hurricane several years before Hurricane Maria. So like in 2015, it was already written. And I was able to write it because a professor that I know, one of her students um, wrote to Puerto Rico and got this book that I thought I was never gonna see because it was like one copy and it was at the University of Puerto Rico in Spanish. Um, and every mayor in Puerto Rico, there's 72 municipalities, something like that, um, was requested to write something about the devastation from the hurricane. Um, so I, she, she, that student got it. She made a copy for me. She made a copy for the professor. And I used it 
uh, to really make the section of the hurricane real. Um, and um, one of my friends um, went through Hurricane Maria in 2017. She's like, oh my God, Marisa, that's the way it was. So I felt fantastic that I was able to like immerse myself in that. Uh, and then I go to libraries. I read so many books in Spanish and English, nonfiction books, sometimes memoirs. In the beginning, my Spanish wasn't so good when it came to, um, to reading Spanish, but I am like pretty good now because I've had to do it for so many years. I had to learn. Uh, and then I also asked my relatives questions about going, growing up in Puerto Rico. Of course, I've been there. So I have that advantage. That's great. Very thorough. And I like the shout out to all the librarians. Yeah. As a librarian, I appreciate that. Uh, Kristen, what about you? Yeah, um, that was so interesting to hear. Um, uh, yeah, my, you know, my research usually begins with a lot of reading. Um, so the idea usually, uh, the idea often is an offshoot from previous research I've done. So, it, it, you know, f- for example, my previous novel, um, The Book of Lost Names, uh, which is about document forgers in France. The idea for that book came about because I had been uh, writing about the French resistance in my previous two novels. And in both novels, I mentioned people escaping with forged documents. And I started thinking, well, wait a minute, who were these people forging these documents? How did you get into document forgery? You know, how did you wind up doing something like this? So that kind of became the seed of the idea for that novel. Um, it, for, in the case of The Forest of Vanishing Stars, um, Um, My main criteria was I just didn't want to write another book set in France. And I'm going back to France again. I'm I'm doing another World War II France book. But I wanted to do something to just kind of knock myself out of my comfort zone a little bit. And thus, Poland. So I stuck with World War II, but went to an area of the world I didn't know as well, where I was kind of forced to, um, to start from scratch. But with this book, my intention had always been to travel there, but I sold the book in February of 2020 and began writing it in March of 2020. And um, we all know what happened in 2020 because it's still happening, right? Um, so I was not able to go, but I, I did a few months of research, uh, uh, which is normally how I start, just reading as much as I can get my hands on. Then I begin outlining, and it's usually during the outline process that I begin reaching out to um, to sources. So in the case of this book, um, I was very fortunate to get to talk to a man named Aaron Bielski, who, along with his brothers, ran a refugee group in Poland during World War II. He was a teenager during the war, and he was part of a group um, of 1,200 refugees that survived and walked out of the forest at the end of the war. Uh, There's a 2008 movie called Defiance, starring Daniel Craig, that's about that group, and he was the youngest brother in that group. So, um, And it happens that he lives a couple hours away from me in Florida, I mean, just by chance. So um, that was incredible. But another part of the story that I struggled with bringing alive, particularly because I was not able to go there, um, was the story of the forest itself. The forest is very much a character in this novel. Um, It's this enormous forest that shelters the refugees, but also in a lot of ways turns its back on them and creates additional dangers. So um, it's kind of a love-hate relationship with the forest. And I did a ton of reading about just wilderness survival in in general and herbal medicine and survival techniques and, you know, all of these things. Um, but there were a lot of things I couldn't, like the tiny details. And I feel like it's the tiny details that can kind of make or break a story. The smells, the the specific berries you'd eat, the specific mushrooms you'd avoid, the way you'd build a stove in the winter, those kinds of things that I couldn't quite um 
pull from the research. And so I reached out to um, a wilderness expert who lives in that very forest, which is now in Belarus. And he became my research right hand. Um, we set up a situation where I paid him by the hour and I would send him like 20, 30, 40 questions at a time. And he would answer in such detail um, that he would accompany his answers with photographs. Um, He would go out into the forest and do the things he was demonstrating. Um, uh, He would find artifacts from the 1940s to show me, you know, what he was talking about. And if he didn't know the answer, he would find somebody there who did. So um, much like the librarian was so helpful uh, to Maricel, he was just an invaluable part of my research. So I feel like he brought the forest alive for me. Um, and Aaron Bielski, um, really brought the refugee experience alive. Um, so it was, I was very lucky to get to speak with both of them. That is amazing. (laughs) Because one thing reading the book, I feel completely prepared to spend a a winter in the Polish forest. Um, I listen, I'm going to dig the thing and get the stove and, you know, so, so yeah, that, that's fascinating. Because I did wonder if that wilderness was something that interested you from the beginning, if you were secretly a wilderness expert. And no. but, but no, apparently. In ret- in retrospect, worst decision ever to force myself out of the comfort zone during a worldwide pandemic. Um, right. This was just not really the year that I should have done that, but I did. And um, and honestly, thank God for him because if if I had not had that connection with him. Um, I don't think the forest in the book would have come alive the same way. But thank you for saying you feel like you could survive in the forest based on this. I assure you that you probably could. I could not. I couldn't. I I am kidding. (laughs) I I could not survive in my backyard uh, for more than a couple of days, much less the Polish forest. But, you know, I feel I feel like I I could uh, at least I don't know. I I would just yearn for Jerusha to to show me the way. Well, and and I'm, I phrased that wrong. I didn't mean that I feel that you could not survive. I mean, you could not survive oh, based on my book. You're totally because... accurate. <laughs> Ariel, tell us about your research process. Well, like my colleagues here, it always begins with reading. There's yeah. always the point where I have to orient myself to a new moment in history. And all of my novels have been completely different. There was Uh, Jazz era in New York City, there was the last flight of the Hindenburg, there was the Russian Revolution, and in this one, it was not just World War II, but specific to the French resistance in the forests in a specific part of France. And I was incredibly fortunate this time that my guide through that story was Nancy Wake herself. She published an autobiography in the early 1980s, I believe. And there was the whole story in her words. It was how she bluffed her way into that newspaper, how she met her husband, what it felt like when the Germans invaded, how she smuggled people in specific, beautiful detail. So my job in terms of the research for this book was incredibly easy. I only read five books this time with my Anastasia Romanov novel, I read 50. So the amount of research reduced But I had to find a really unique way to tell this story. And the challenge was, how do you take a girl whose first journalism assignment is to interview the newly elected chancellor, Adolf Hitler? How do you take that girl and then eight years later have her kill a Nazi with her bare hands? Both things actually happened in real life. So the, the challenge this time was less about where do I find my information and how do I make that woman come, come alive on the page? And so 
that is sort of her story from interviewing Hitler to killing one of his minions with her bare hands. That's incredible. That is, that is, I have, I, um, I have to say, Ariel, the, 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 the last section, I guess, whatever that the afterward section of your books are always so good. And the, the, um, the first line is also like, don't read this yet. You haven't <laughs> finished the book. Do not continue. And because everything is sort of revealed and, and laid out and which parts were um, true and which parts were a little, you know, embellished or, or, or whatever. But, and, and I was going to read, it's still on my list. I'm, I've, I want to read her, her autobiography. Um, um, it's on my list. You know, my list is large. It's um, hard to find. I will warn you. It is the physical copy is out of print. So there you got to scrounge around for them. I found one when I was writing the book, it was an out of print bookshop in England that I found one and had one shipped. Well, it wasn't even published in the United States, which makes it harder. It was published yeah, in yeah. the UK and Australia. I'll, I'll find a librarian somewhere to, uh, <laughs> to help you find connections. it. Yes. We have a network. And this, this next question sort of goes along with the research process. What responsibility do you feel you have to um, the past and these people and getting their stories correct? And what, what sense of responsibility is there? Mm-hmm. And Ariel, you can start. Yeah, uh, I feel like it's a huge sense of responsibility. My number one mantra for myself is tell the truth. I have to tell the truth. And what that means is I can't rewrite history. I cannot change these major things that we can establish in the historical record. I can find my story in the cracks between the facts that we know. And so my approach, because I have so far, everything I've written has had at least one historical person in it. I remain true to what history tells us about that person. It doesn't have to be flattering, but it has to be true. And I am always very aware that most of the time, these people have descendants. They have relatives that are still living. And pretty much in every case with every book I've written, if it is not a relative that has reached out to me, it was a friend or an acquaintance or somebody intimately connected to the story. So I'm aware that I will have to answer that email at some point. So I try to tread carefully, but I'm also interested in telling a story. So there's, I must tell the truth. I must also remember that my books are shelved in fiction because that's what they are. So there does come a point with every novel where I have held it exactly to the historical record dates and names and times. And then I get a point to where I have to release myself. So like, as you mentioned in my author's note, I mentioned where time was compressed or if she met these two people separately over a course of two years, I'll put them all together in a bar so they meet at once. But I try to fess up to that at the end because it's important to tell the truth. It's important to tell a story. And it's also important to let the reader know the choices that I made as the author for the sake of my specific story. Uh, Maricel, what about you? Well, uh, I felt a great responsibility to make uh, everything in the Taste of Sugar historically accurate because I realized when I was working on it that um, it was important to us Puerto Ricans for it to be historically accurate because there are very few um, novels in the English language um, that have the history of Puerto Rico in it. And we don't see ourselves very often in books not in the English language. 
Um, and a lot of us don't know our history because Puerto Rico is a colony and the history that really is taught is the history of the colony, the United States. Puerto Rican history is basically erased. And many Puerto Ricans don't know exactly how Puerto Rico became a colony. And it's important for us to know, especially now in the time that we are living in, when uh, things are terrible in Puerto Rico and people are trying to figure out, okay, uh, what can we do to help ourselves here? And what can Puerto Ricans in the diaspora uh, do to help Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico? So it was very, very important to me. And especially because I didn't know my own history when I was growing up. I didn't know where I came from and neither did my parents. They didn't know their history. Uh, and that was personally a very hard thing growing up in the United States because I wasn't Puerto Rican enough in my family and I wasn't American enough outside my family. So then I felt, you know how teenagers always feel they don't know where they belong. Well, I really didn't know where I belonged. Um, and uh, working on the taste of sugar gave me a foundation that I uh, also have given to other readers. I've had readers uh, reach out to me and tell me that for the first time that since they read the taste of sugar, they feel seen. And that it, that's so important to me and to us Puerto Ricans. Um, and I was very, very careful with the research because I knew that um, it was going to be bigger as I was working on it. I thought this, is, this book is going to be bigger than just a story about Valentina Sanchez and Vicente Vega, how they love each other and they lose their coffee farm and they have to go to Hawaii. It's bigger than that. It really is about the history of Puerto Rico as an American colony and what, uh, how the people suffered under uh, the imposition of Puerto Rico uh, as a colony. And um, I knew that the Puerto Rican historians, I needed them on my side, uh, but I didn't have anyone really to work with. What I did, I did it all myself. I reached out to somebody if I had a question. I read this book if I had a question. I had to learn so much, in including also things about farming and things like that, because my a coffee farmer is a farmer. I have to learn how do how you grow coffee. How do you think? Uh, and also, it's set in um, you know before the Spanish and American War. Obviously, I didn't live during that period, and I had to um, seek. Uh, books and newspaper articles. There were a lot of newspaper articles, a uh, lot of newspapers in Puerto Rico. And I went to New York to um, the Center for New, you know, um, Puerto Rican Studies. And I read a lot of them in microfilm. That's super hard to read all these newspapers in microfilm. Oh my God. Uh, but the fantastic thing is after it was published, uh, we sent it out to some Puerto Rican historians and I've gotten uh, really fantastic validation that my research is meticulous. Uh, some of them are in awe that I was able to do it in fiction because obviously they can't. And um, it's very gratifying because I feel that The Taste of Sugar is, um, it's published when it's meant to be published. And I'm hoping that when people read this, they will just support the Self-Determination Act that's in front of Congress for Puerto Rico because uh, Puerto Rico just can't be the way it is right now. It's in a very terrible state. 
Um, just one follow up. You mentioned, um, you know, that it, pub- it was published when it needed to be published, but you also mentioned that you wrote part of it in 2015. So how, how long has this been going on? I, I started working on it really in 2012, um, right around the time I moved to Switzerland because my husband was working there. So I lived there for a few years and it's been a, a it's it's been a very long time i um when Kristen was talking about how she uh does synopsis or outlines i always admire writers that can do that because i can't uh like the middle um there's this chapter in the middle when they're of this novel when they're on the ship that's the first thing i wrote uh, and that's the middle of the novel because that's just the way my brain works. You know, right now I'm working on a new novel called The Girls from Humble Park about these four girls and nothing comes in order. People show up. There are a ton of people. One of my writer friends told me, you have too many people in your book. <laughs> but you know what? That's really like, people don't know the Puerto Rican culture. So I feel like we need the people so that people who aren't Puerto Ricans can understand it, uh, understand us and people who are Puerto Ricans can celebrate us. Well, thanks. I, I was just curious about that, that process since you mentioned that was a few years ago. Um, Kristen, uh, let's hear from you about uh, your, your responsibility to the past and your relationship with it. Yeah, I, you know, um, I, I come from a journalism background. And so I think um, first and foremost, I really try to get every detail right uh, to the best of my ability. Um, but like Ariel, sometimes there are things that have to change a little bit. And it's a little bit different from what Ariel's doing because she's writing about people who were real historical figures. And I'm taking historical um, backdrops and historical dates. And, you know, I, I'm working with all of the real historical details, but setting fictional characters in those worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine what she has to do is a little bit more difficult because she's having to stick to the the individual people's storylines. Um but, you know, I, I was talking earlier about um, the forest guide who helped me. And I had a lot of research material that I tried to draw, you know, the little tiny details from. But I, again, perhaps it's coming from a journalism background. I felt such a responsibility even to get every little berry that I mentioned right or every tree or, you know, it, to the extent that I would write to him and say, OK, here's this scene. and They're going to use this herb to clot um, blood for a wound, um, is that accurate to this area of the forest? And he would say, ooh, they'd have to travel a mile mm-hmm. south of where they are in this scene. I mean, it, it was it was that detailed. And nobody would have picked that up. Nobody, you wouldn't have picked up the novel and thought to yourself, oh, she didn't do her research. That herb doesn't grow there. It's only a mile south, you know? But, um, but I felt like those things were important because those were pieces of reality. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I strive to get all of that right because I feel like, if you don't, you are doing an injustice to the true story because these are true stories that unfolded. These are true historical occurrences that shaped the world. I, I mean, all of us are writing about moments in history that shaped the world. Um, but I think even uh, moving beyond getting the details right, I, I feel a responsibility, I think, to um, to keep these stories alive. Uh, you know, World War II is what I'm choosing to write about now. I've written several novels about World War II starting in uh, 2012. And I think that that's a particularly, for me, just my own personal interests. Um, to me, that's a very important um, 
era in history to keep alive because, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons still to learn from that time period. Um, and they're lessons that are still very relevant to today. And I mean, I think that's reflected in what Marisol was saying about, uh, about her work. I think it's certainly been reflected in Ariel's work. Um, uh, you know, I, I loved your book about um, the Russian revolution also. I mean, the, uh, uh, she was Anastasia. I'm, yeah, I was Anastasia. I was Anastasia. I was Anastasia. That was such a great book too. But, you know, I feel like history has these lessons for us. Um, and, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons we write about it. If it didn't feel relevant, what would be the point sort of in writing about it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that in all three of these books, um, there were probably lessons that were particularly relevant to, to what we went through in 2020 and 2021, right? Like that idea of um, finding the way to be extraordinary, um, even if you come from an ordinary background, that idea of finding um, a way to be the light in the darkness. I think those were things that really um, resonated and were messages that could lead people forward in in another time of difficulty, the time of difficulty that, you know, we're still kind of in the process of going through. Um, and, and so in terms of responsibility, I do think it's a great idea um, and a great privilege to be able to continue to share these stories from the past that have messages for the future, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and that actually, that my next question was going to be, why are you drawn to historical fiction? Although I think you might have sort of answered that. Is it, do you think it is um, easier or more fulfilling? It may be easy. Isn't the word if you have to do all these, all this research, is it more fulfilling to get your points across by going into another land, going into another era to tell it? What do you think, Kristen? Um, that's hard for me to answer because, you know, I, I started off my career writing romantic comedy, which was a very, um, very different thing that I'm doing now. Um, and I transitioned to doing historical fiction in 2012. Uh, the other books were much easier from a research perspective, but I think there's something about writing history that comes with a built in credibility, maybe, or a built in seriousness to the message. Because you're relying on things that happened in the past, because you're relying on real moments in history, because you're relying on lessons that have already, in theory, been learned, even if they're not remembered. Um, And and there's something powerful about that. I think even if you're writing historical fiction from 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, um, but I also think there's value in writing modern day stories too. So I, I'm not sure. I, I don't, I certainly don't think that's the only way to share these powerful messages, but I think I enjoy the the research tremendously and I enjoy drawing my own inspiration, I think, from these heroines and, and these heroes um, of the past who, who really found ways in a different time with, um, with fewer tools than we have available today um, to make a difference. And, and I, I do think, um, that knowing that these stories really happened, it maybe provides an additional layer of inspiration. Yeah, I, I can see that. Um, yeah. I think, and all of you have written other books of historical fiction. Um, yeah. If not exclusively <laughs> so, you definitely have uh, multiple um, multiple novels. Uh, just a side note, in when I was reading Codename Helene, there's a, obviously there, forgery is a big part. And I was like, she needs to get together with Eva from <laughs> names because she Eva could she could hook Helene up with some more <laughs> Ariel we need to write like a little collaborative novella or something exactly <laughs> but Ariel since you've written several books of uh, historical fiction why why are you drawn 
best way that I can explain that or explain my reasoning here is many, many, many years ago, I read a Stephen King novel. I don't remember which one it was. And he has fabulous author's notes at the end. I love his author's notes. I try to make mine as entertaining. And in it, he was answering the question. Somebody had asked him, why does he write horror? People were like, oh my gosh, you write these terrible things. Why? But his explanation made sense to me. And he described his brain as this big sieve and everything gets poured in, right? All the information, things he runs into across the course of the day. But what's left at the end of the day are the strange, weird things, the ideas for monsters, the Cujo, for instance, how do you take the family dog and turn him into a monster? That was what fascinated him. So if my brain was a sieve, the thing that is left at the end of the day are these really fascinating historical tidbits that I kind of know about, but have never explored. Like my first novel is based on the true story of a missing judge who disappeared in 1930. And I read this and I wanted to know what happened to the judge. My second novel is set on the Hindenburg and we know what happened to it. But to this day, no one has ever been able to say with any amount of certainty why it crashed. But I wanted to know why it crashed and I wanted to know who was on board. And then with my third novel, I was Anastasia. I read a story about a woman floating in a canal who was pulled out and later claimed to be Anastasia Romanov. And I wanted to know if she really was. And then of course, with codename Helene, I was fascinated by the story of this female military leader, but also really invested in finding out whether or not she and her husband were reunited at the end of the war. So I gather this information and I find this fascinating tidbit and with it comes a question. There's always a question attached to this idea. And that is the thing that drives me forward because I personally want the answer. So it's always the impetus. It's always the thing that drives me. And I have a list on the wall in front of me of questions that I have yet to answer about moments in history. Interesting. I really want to get my hands on that list. (laughs) Can you turn your camera (laughs) to the wall? No, I cannot. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think so, but I thought I'd try. Um, that, that's interesting that, that the were they reunited was sort of what uh, propelled you forward because the love story in Codename Helen is just incredible. Um, you know, the, uh, I, <laughs> if you're watching this and you haven't read uh, these three books, um, you need to. There are love stories in all of them. And Maricel, you listen, if they, if, if Valentina and Vicente did not have love, that it, things would have been much bleaker than, uh, than, than they could have been. Um, so tell us, well, that's not really a great segue. I'm going to ask you about what draws you to historical fiction, but if you also want to address oh, the yeah. love story, that would be great. Uh, well, what draws me, um, I, I've realized that I have a calling to write about Puerto Rico, Puerto Ricans. That is my calling. Um, It's not something that I chose, but it's what I need to do. Uh, And that it started when I was very young, when I was growing up, um, my parents had uh, six children and four girls and they raised us girls like they were still in Puerto Rico without the rules and and it was it was very hard because here we're living in Chicago and not up, up on the mountain. Uh, but even when I was very young, I would listen to them talk 
uh, and all the Puerto Ricans talk and I would, you know, listen to the music. And so that helped train my ear mm. so that when I write, I have like the rhythm of Puerto Ricans talking and, um, uh, and uh, I, um, um, I feel like it is my, my job. I have this talent for writing and it is what I want to do and what I'm called to write these stories so that people who are Puerto Ricans will understand us. And uh, people who are Puerto Ricans can celebrate ourselves and our culture and everything we have to do to survive. There's this uh, right now in Puerto Rico, there's um, people are saying that Puerto Ricans are resilient, but it's terrible that we need to be resilient. Uh, right now at this moment with the new electrical company that um, was given this contract from Texas, there are power shortages, electricity all the time. Can you imagine you have to go so many days without electricity in a tropical place? Mm. Uh, and especially if you're elderly and you need like oxygen or something like that. So I feel like my work is historical. The t um, if I Bring You Roses, my first novel was set in the 1950s and the 1940s in Puerto Rico, 1950s in Chicago. And so I've, with that, I wanted to explore um, the second exodus of Puerto Ricans, Operation Bootstrap. And uh, I'm, my third novel that I'm working on now also will explore that and how these political things that happen on the island uh, happen because of what's happening in the world and, and especially the United States and how it affects us here, uh, even present day. And so... Uh, with the uh, the taste of sugar and Valentina and Vicente, I wanted to write about the struggle during that period for the island and for the people. And um, I gave um, Vicente also a half brother, so they uh, my readers could see uh, another part of Puerto Rico that they might not have been able to see with just a couple. Uh, and I write in both voices because, especially during this period. Uh, the um, the male the genders are just so separate and what they have to do so that you can really get an idea of how life was for the two different genders. But with Valentina and Vicente, they uh, have this love story, and also my first novel also has a love story, and I just love a love story and everything. Um, I was watching a Hitchcock film the other day, and like he has a love story in every single movie, and I that just makes it more pleasurable for me, if, even if it's just a little love story. And Vicente and Valentina needed to have a strong love because of everything that they went through. If they didn't have that love, yeah. they wouldn't have been able to have hope, yeah. which they, you know, do. And it's, listen, um, Valentina, I, I felt her very deeply. You know, she, from what she wanted for her life, to what she ended up with and then all of the struggles and the tragedy and the continued tragedy. And listen, I'm not over the, the wheelbarrow. <laughs> I talk about the wheelbarrow all the time to uh, just to, you know, I don't know. It's just part of my, my thing now. Like, well, at least I don't have to get a wheelbarrow to do the thing that she had to do the wheelbarrow with. I don't want to spoil anything. Um but the, but the love story and the, and there is, there is the love and there is, um, you know, these moments of celebration, um, that, that help to, to temper, um, because when you're telling a true story, it's not all happiness. You, you have to tell the, you know, the hard parts, right? 
Yes, yes. And except for Valentina and Vicente, they, um, the facts are correct. You know, and uh, I also use some real people uh, like Ariel said that she did. But I have to say, uh, like some of the people that were real, like the sheriff and the judge, I gave myself latitude as a writer to say what I wanted to say about them, to say what I thought about the way they treated Puerto Ricans. And uh, even if they have ancestors who are alive and they would read it, you know what? I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I'm coming from. I don't care. (laughs) I like it. I like the deviation from, um, yes, we must honor everyone, but those guys. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And this is, this is kind of a weird question, I guess, but given that you, all of you like to occupy different spaces. Is there a time period that you would like to time travel to? Hmm. Ariel, we can. Yes. Um, I, my, this is very specific, but it's also very personal. My father's mother died when he was 16 years old. And so he spent much of his adolescence without her and really the rest of his life but I've heard stories of who she was and what an absolute firecracker she was. So if I got one opportunity to go back in time, it would be to meet her probably because I've been told my entire life, how much I look like her, how much I am like her. And she is a whole, she's just a missing hole in my life. I've only ever had one grandmother because the other passed. And I would love, that would be, I would choose so my dad, I would choose early mid 1930s, probably before my dad was born, probably no, I take it back. I would choose late 1930s, early 1940s. So when she was at her prime, right about the time my dad was born. That is very specific. You see, while you're there, you can do some research. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kristen, what about you? Well, Ariel, we could hang out because I'm also going back to the 1930s. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think I used to think um, that I would have liked to be an adult in the 60s because I think that um, I think that that was such a, a fascinating period of change for this country. Um, My dad would say, "No, you wouldn't." <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, well, it, it, and that's probably true too. I think you know we tend to look back and romanticize, you know, the, the things that happened. Like I, the moments I would have liked to go back to probably were not the ones that were representative of what it was really like to live in that decade. Right. Um, but just listening to you talk about your grandmother, it, um, it made me think, um, you know, one of the things I discovered in the, not even in the research, but while I was writing the forest of vanishing stars, um, my brother shared our ancestry.com family tree with me. And I had never known that my dad's Jewish side of the family was from Poland. So they were actually from an area, not that far away from what I was you know, what I was writing about that I was drawn to for no discernible reason. So, you know, I, I kind of have thought a lot about that since then, just about this idea of kind of having these stories in our blood and having, you know, this piece of our identity that we don't really know about, but that somehow influences who we are. And, um, in that ancestry.com research, we found this record of my great, great grandmother, whose name was Rosie Harmel, um, who was a Polish immigrant to the United States, a Jewish Polish immigrant. Um, she was 69 years old in 1933 when she hopped on a, um, a ship and traveled back to Europe um, for a visit. She was gone for several months. I assume she was going back to visit in uh, visit family in Poland. And I think that would have been such a fascinating journey to be along on. That was the interwar period. Um, you know, it, it was a period when the storm clouds were kind of beginning to gather, but um, but things weren't um, things weren't 
happening there yet that, you know, World War II hadn't started. It, it wasn't as dark as it became very soon after. Um, but the idea of traveling on an ocean liner in 1933 with, oh, yeah. with this woman at 69 and 69 now is young, but 69 in 1933. I mean, that was a pretty brave age to step onto an ocean liner, travel across the ocean and then travel across a continent. Right. Um, so I think I would have loved to do that. And while I was there in 1933, I would have loved to meet my grandparents as, um, as young people, um, you know, because I, I knew them in the latter years of their lives. Um, I, I was fortunate enough uh, to know them. Um, and I loved my, my mother's parents so deeply. Um, but to have known that other piece of them um, before they became adults, when they were just being shaped, I think would have been amazing. So I guess I've never thought of it that way before. So thank you, Ariel, for sharing that. That just kind of influenced my answer. <laughs> Marisol, where, where are you time traveling to in this scenario? Well, right now I'm in the 70s in Chicago and Puerto Rico, but um, I also am interested in 1930s, but in Puerto Rico. Oh, you can meet uh, us too. We'll all hang out. <laughs> I, uh, it was a, politically, it was a life changing time. Um, but um, I liked to uh, get to know my grandparents and my great grandparents because they were alive then. And I've heard that my great grandfather was very much um, the master of the family. Uh, so I'd be interested in uh, getting to know him and also the, um, I come from a very large family, many, many uncles. My mother had like nine brothers. Uh, so I would like to um, explore these, uh, these ancestors. And there was an aunt that my uh, mother and my godmother told me about that she wanted to get married. And for some reason, she couldn't get married. And um, her, um, she decided to um, leave her house and uh, live in this little house, I think, by herself with a man. So I'm like, oh, my God, in a proper family, that would have been just a repercussions. This very strong woman, she's supposed to have like a temper, un carácter fuerte, which means like a very strong character and is willing to uh, make waves uh, or go, go against people. So I think it would be very interesting to talk to them, especially, or even live around, uh, live with them if I could, just for a period, especially now that my Spanish is so much better uh, than it was before I started to do research. Now I, um, I can speak it very well, I can read it very well, and I can learn things. Uh, my, um, like 10 years after the Spanish-American War, this great grandfather, he sold this farm that he had in Utuado to the U.S. and they made some kind of pond or something like that. And then he moved to another part of Puerto Rico. So it would be just so interesting because from that part of Puerto Rico, he moved to another part where my family is still on this mountain. Um, and the reason he chose to live on that mountain is because it was near enough to Ponce, which is like a big town. I write about it in my novel. And he and his sons, um, they were farmers, but just to support themselves, they made these saddles from these banana leaves. I also write about it. Um, and, and they would go to Ponce to sell these saddles to um, you know, people for their horses. So I just think that there's just so much detail that I would, it would just enrich my life to meet them. And also all these details that I've read about to see how they lived would be just so fascinating. 
Great. I thought that was a weird question, but I'm glad I asked it because those are all really interesting answers. Um, we are coming to the end of our time, but I do want to ask if um, what kind of things you like to read, it, like not your research, but your your pleasure reading, if you have time for it, um, if, what kind of things you like to read? I just finished uh, Stephen King's new novel. I know I've mentioned him twice. I can no longer read his horror novels. I stopped reading his horror novels about the time I grew up and left home and realized that there were monsters in real life and they were all human. But I love his suspense. So I just finished his new novel, Billy Summers, and it is spectacular. It I'm still thinking about it days and days and days later. So, I mean, I guess it would be thriller suspense it's about a hitman going out for one last job but he only kills bad people and you know what can go wrong on your last job and of course the answer is everything and um it has absolutely moved up definitely to the top of my favorites of Stephen King but probably one of my favorites of the year so far that's awesome I'm writing it down making sure it's on my on that growing list I have Kristen what about you um, I think I gravitate most often toward historical fiction, not always World War II. And I really try not to read World War II when I'm writing World War II because, um, you know, I, I try to read World War II fiction between my books, so I'm not accidentally um, influenced in any way. Um, but, you know, a book that I bet I'm guessing you might have read this already, Ariel, because it, it's a mutual friend of ours. Um, Patty Callahan's Once Upon mm-hmm. a Wardrobe, which is coming out, I think, next month, right? October 19th, Beautiful. I think it yes. is. Absolutely beautiful. It's so good. And it's just different. It's, um, it's about the true story behind Narnia. It's about, um, a girl who goes to CS Lewis and asks him where the idea of Narnia came from. Um, and this is, uh, Patty's second book where she's kind of delving into that world of CS Lewis. Her first was becoming Mrs. Lewis, which was a big hit book. Um, but it's just really beautifully done. And I know she did it with the help of, um, CS Lewis's, uh, stepson, which I, I think is really neat. He's actually going to be doing a book club with her for that. So I love reading historical fiction. That's one I'd highly recommend. Um, and, but, you know, I, I'm always surprised by how much I enjoy reading outside of the genre that I think is my genre. So I read a novel this summer called Razorblade Tears by mm-hmm. S.A. Cosby, which was fantastic, but it's like a bloody revenge thriller. And I thought, you know, I read it because I was doing an event with him and I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much I'm going to like this book. And it was one of the best books I've read all year. It was phenomenal. So um, I need to remind myself to push those boundaries a little bit more and, and read stuff that I think isn't going to be my kind of thing. Cause it, it usually is. <laughs> Great. And Marisol. I love to read books in translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I seek them out. I'm reading one called the gate uh, set in Japan and uh, the writer wrote it in, I don't know if it was like uh, 1910 or something like that. Um, but I learned so much about different cultures, reading books and translation by the, the writers themselves who come from those cultures. So I really appreciate that. And uh, right now I'm reading, a, I'm going to read The Sympathizer uh, because I read um, the first novel, which I absolutely loved um, and um, in the series. Uh, but I also like to read books about World War II. That's like a secret um, you know, not so secret now, but that's like the secret thing that I read. Just, I don't want to say pleasure, but it, it's, it's just so interesting, fascinating to me. Um, and I read a lot of African-American writers also. Uh, and some Puerto Rican writers are just beginning to be published. One, the, a book that I read uh, recently and was published 
about 10 years ago is called Daughters of the Stone. And what's really fascinating, the book is very good and it's about um, how slavery, uh, enslaved people uh, were brought to Puerto Rico. So, um, so that's how that book, what that book is about. Um, but what's interesting about the author is that um, her first novel like mine was, was remandered within less than a year because not enough marketing, nobody knew about it. So she kept it alive herself by uh, writing to um, librarians, writing to universities, pitching her book as a good historical uh, way to learn about enslaved people in Puerto Rico. And it's still out there. And her second novel is gonna be coming out, I think um, the end of this year or next year. I mean, it's just fantastic that she could do that. So I recommend that if you wanna read uh, another novel, historical novel about Puerto Rico. Wonderful. Um, all the books that y'all have mentioned, I'll make sure that my library gets them. So anyone watching this in the state of Mississippi can go to their public library and request them. Um, we also have book club kits and we will be creating book club kits of all three of your books. So folks that are in book clubs all over the state can go to their public libraries, request the kits, you know, read and talk and uh, duke it out about uh, what, what, which parts were the best and mm-hmm. all the decisions people made. And if they could, in fact, live in the forest successfully for more than 10 minutes without freezing. I could not. There's no way. There's no way. This has been so fun talking to all of y'all about your books and about reading and your inspirations and your research process. I hate that we weren't able to do this in person, but this, um, I think Ariel said, it's the second best thing. Um, we'll, we'll go with that and hopefully um, next year or the year after sometime we'll see you again at another Mississippi Book Festival but again thank you so much for being with us I appreciate it thank you for having us Ride on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival the South's literary lawn party